Tim Egan thought he'd try walking the ancient pilgrim route from Canterbury to Rome. Coming up, he explains how your beliefs can be challenged by the medieval mindset, especially when you confront it in person. Some of them would start out as Christians and end up as atheists. Others would start out as atheists and end up as Christians. A trip to Germany helped Lori Erickson connect with her spiritual heritage. She's since traveled as far as Peru and as close as South Dakota to look for what's sacred. There are places all over the earth where people can have this sort of rich, life-changing travel experience. And Paris correspondent Elaine Shalino remembers what it was like one year ago when word got out that the Cathedral of Notre Dame was on fire. It was an absolute nightmare, and it affected people in very strange ways. There are places on Earth that can move you deep within. We'll find some of them just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. For the last 15 years, our mission on Travel with Rick Steves has been to stoke your travel dreams and to share inspiring stories from every corner of our globe. While the world grapples with the pandemic of coronavirus, we understand that trips are temporarily off the table for many of us. But we'll get through this, and we'll keep on traveling when this crisis becomes old news. Until then, Let's use this time to stoke those travel dreams as we enjoy hearing from our friends and experts about their adventures. If this crisis teaches us anything, it's that we're all in this together, and it's important to get to know our neighbors. Sometimes you don't know you've been on a pilgrimage until you get home. In just a bit, New York Times columnist Tim Egan tells us how his journey to Rome down the medieval Via Francigena influenced his attitude toward the religion he grew up with. And a clergywoman from Iowa invites us to become holy rovers by visiting sacred sites around the world, some that might only be a road trip away. By the way, this is Travel with Rick Steves, program number 600, and it's our 15th anniversary. We started out on KUOW in Seattle in April of 2005. Today, they're one of more than 450 public radio stations around the country where you can hear us each week. Thanks for traveling with us. Let's start today's show remembering the impact of the fire that damaged Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris one year ago. With 13 million visitors a year, the medieval masterpiece had been attracting more visitors than St. Peter's Basilica. Elaine Chalino has been a correspondent in Paris since 2002, and she describes how the river that surrounds Notre Dame came to the rescue in her book, The Seine, The River That Made Paris. Elaine, thanks for joining us. Where were you, and I know how much you love Paris. What was it like when you heard about the fire at the Notre Dame on April 15, 2019? I live in Paris, Rick, and I happened to have been in New York at the time, and I was in an office building and suddenly looked at a TV screen, and there was CNN with the Notre Dame in flames. I mean, my city, my cathedral. And I was so, my first questions were, did anyone die and was it terrorism? And once it was established that it was a terrible accident and no one died, I was relieved because I was confident, even at that very moment, that it would be rebuilt. Mm. Maybe different, but it would survive. It had to. Yeah. Now, you were probably celebrating the fact that you've got this wonderful book, The Seine, The River That Made Paris, just coming out. In actuality, in a lot of ways, it was the Seine that enabled the firefighters to save the cathedral. Well, I got a phone call from my husband who was watching all of this on French TV in Paris, and he said, Elaine, you're not going to believe this, but I'm watching television 
and there is a boat that seems to be pumping water up to the firefighters on the land into the cathedral. And I knew at that moment I had to write another chapter Hmm. about the Seine and its role in helping to put out the fire at Notre Dame. Thank God they had access to all that water. When you think of the structure of a Gothic cathedral, a lot of people don't realize it, but there's huge oak beams. There's a whole structure between the ceiling and the roof, and it's a network of oak beams. The roof would be a lead-covered roof, 800 years old. I've seen in museums gargoyles with molten lead spewing out their mouths, you know, cooling and freezing there when you've had a fire like this. I mean, it's just a nightmare when a Gothic cathedral bursts into flames. I agree 100% with you. It was an absolute nightmare, and it affected people in very strange ways. I mean, people who had no real religious connection with Notre Dame were weeping in the streets, and people around the world were mourning the fact that this edifice that to many represents the heart and soul of Paris was on the verge of destruction. Now, I understand the the 19th century spire, which in your chapter you, you say has 500 tons of oak, 250 tons of lead, fell 300 feet crashing to the ground. It's amazing that the entire church didn't collapse. Uh, A lot of people don't realize that stone gets compromised in heat, and giant stone buildings can fall down because of a fire. Well, the firefighters who belong to the French military, they're not part of the city of Paris uh, force, went into action as if it was a, a military operation, and the commander of the firefighters sent some of his team into the burning North Tower risking their lives Mm -hmm. to try to cool down that tower, which we still don't know one year later, is it completely intact or does it need to be supported Mm. in some way? Now, that must have been quite a dramatic decision because you can stand back and make sure nobody is in danger's way and then the tower would have collapsed. Or you can send your firefighters in risking a situation like on 9-11 when the trade towers collapsed and all the firefighters inside would perish. Again, thank goodness, 500 firefighters participated. They took the bold move. They rushed in, they cooled the church, and they saved the North Tower. Well, General Galay, who is the commander of the firefighters, had spent time in Afghanistan, and he had studied also the 9-11 tragedy in Mm. the United States. Mm. But he had to go to the president of France to get permission to send his firefighters in. And what he told the president is, if we don't do this, we're a half an hour away from Notre Dame collapsing. That is amazing. You know, we can mourn the church. We can love the church. But it's hard to get into the heart and the mind of Parisians. What does it mean to Paris? I mean, it just seems like, of course, you've got the zero point in front, right? Everything is measured in France from the Notre Dame. It's the place where their kings have been coronated through the centuries in so many ways. It's the cultural heart of the city. Even back before the advent of Christianity, there was a temple yes. to Jupiter right there. Can you talk a little bit about the Notre Dame as that heart and soul of the great city of Paris? Well, Notre Dame is on the Ile de la Cité, which was where Paris was created. It's the very origin of Paris. Mm. It sits there as not only a beautiful historical monument, a museum, but it sits there as the absolute essence of Paris. Mm. So for French Catholics, it's a place of worship, but for the rest of the French nation, it's really the origin of their capital city. 
We're remembering the Notre Dame fire one year later right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest, Elaine Shalino, has written a number of books about her home base in Paris. Her latest is called The Seine, The River That Made Paris. You'll find links to her website and her prior appearances with us at ricksteves.com slash radio. Elaine, I love to stand on the what is called the parvis, the, the square parvis, in front of the yes. church. Mm-hmm. If you stand there, embedded into the pavement is, is little stones that show where the medieval streets were 800 years ago. You've got the statue of Charlemagne standing high above you. Uh, you've got a long line of people waiting to get into that church, tourists. For me, I, I waited for years to see the facade restored, and it was just sparkling white and standing bold against the blue sky. What is it like for you, to, as a person who's all your adult life, it seems like, loved and embraced Paris, to stand there on that square in front of the church? Well, I'm going to add something to where you're standing for your listeners, because what I like to do is when there are times in my life where I can't sleep and it's the sort of the middle of the night and I get up before dawn and I take myself to the Pont de la Tournelle before dawn and I look at the back of Notre Dame as the sun comes up. And if the sun is going to come up and it's not a cloudy day, I love to watch the back of Notre Dame. This is the 19th century sort of skeleton part of Notre Dame turn orange with the rising sun. And it's one of those great moments in life where you say, I own Paris, and all is right with the world. Oh, I love it. And I do think that looking at the apse, the area behind the altar, you know, people enter from the west facade, the west uh, portal. And uh, if you stand on the east, you see the exoskeletal nature of Gothic architecture with the buttresses and the arches outside. You see the glorious windows, and you, you think about 800 years ago, what an amazing thing it was to have all that light pouring in to the nave as people would gather to worship. And to this day, we can stand there and marvel at that. And then you widen your, your view, and you see this is on an island, and you've got all of the traffic that sort of is the metabolism of the great city of Paris around you, and the tourists are not out yet, uh, the sun is rising. Exactly. That's exactly. worth getting out of bed for, isn't it? It's worth getting out of bed for. But no, if I tell all your listeners that, then they're going to do it, and then there's going to be too many people on my bridge. <laughs> well, I think anybody that gets out of bed at 6 o'clock in the morning gets a piece of that bridge. So, Elaine, as we look back after one year, what is the, the basic prognosis for us who travel to Paris to see the Notre Dame? While it's being restored, can we get near it? Uh, will we be able to go into it actually someday? Do you feel like they will be able to restore the cathedral to its previous glory? It's going to be a long way off. The president of France, uh, in his televised uh, address to the nation right after the fire, declared that Notre Dame would be rebuilt and even more beautiful than before, and he wanted it done within five years. That was extraordinarily ambitious and optimistic, and that is certainly not going to happen. It's going to take longer than that to get Mm. Notre Dame completely restored. Visitors to Paris are not going to be able to walk into Notre Dame or even get very, very close to Notre Dame. They'll be able to walk around it, and you can also go on my bridge if you want to see it from behind. But the restoration is very, very delicate, Hmm. and there are so many unknowables even one year after the fire. Is the structure still solid? Is there going to be a rebuilding of the forest of trees that would require hundreds of 
oak trees to be chopped down. Much of Notre Dame was restored in the 19th century by Violet Le Duc, and he had a vision for Notre Dame when he was restoring Notre Dame and when he built the spire that fell in the uh, fire of a year ago. And he said, in a project of this sort, one cannot proceed with enough prudence and discretion. A restoration can do more harm to a monument than the ravages of the centuries and the fury of rioters. And I would argue that that holds true today and that those architects who have been arguing for prudence and caution should be heard. Leave it to the French people to deal openly with these complicated issues and to um, treasure and, and take care of their heritage, which is part of all of our heritage. Elaine, thank you so much for um, reporting on this. Let's check back when Notre Dame is open again and, and retakes its primal place in the life of uh, the French people. With pleasure. Thank you so much. When does a trip turn into some sort of spiritual pilgrimage? Laurie Erickson tells us what it's like to be a holy rover in just a bit. But next, Tim Egan returns to Travel with Rick Steves to tell us about his remarkable trek from England to Rome. An Irish-American Catholic by birth and a skeptic by profession, New York Times columnist Timothy Egan set out on a nearly 1,200-mile hike on the historic Via Francigena Trail. As he put it, the mission? To find God in Europe before God is gone. His journey from Canterbury, England, went across France, Switzerland, and Italy, and it influenced what he does and does not believe. It's a deep dive into the history of Europe and the Catholic faith. Tim is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and a best-selling author. He's written eight books, now his ninth. It's called A Pilgrimage to Eternity, From Canterbury to Rome in Search of Faith. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Rick. Wow. A pilgrimage from Canterbury to Rome, the Via Francigena. That means the uh, the St. Francis Way. It's the way, yeah, the way through France is what it's sometimes interpreted as. Is it the same route as Canterbury Tales, the Chaucer book? No, the start is the same as Canterbury Tales. So okay. we owe you know, so much of our English literature, Canterbury Tales, to the pilgrims who would go to Canterbury and try to outdo each other in tales of daring do to get to this shrine where Thomas Beckett was hacked to Okay, death. so that was an example, but this was sort of this medieval approach to pilgrimage. Exactly. People would go somewhere, they'd be on a journey. Exactly. And this, and the Via Francigena, by the way, which is less known than the Camino de Santiago, was the most popular pilgrimage route in the medieval ages. A million people a year made that journey. Many of them did not make it back. They died of exposure. There were robbers. There was all this stuff along the way. The reason to go was because if you could make it to Rome, all your sins would be forgiven. Therefore, a pilgrimage to eternity. So that was like the Camino to Santiago. If you made it to Santiago de Compostela, you had that sort of reward of forgiveness. Right. I, I think Muslims are supposed to, in one time in their lifetime, go do the Hajj to go to Mecca. Right, exactly. Same sort of thing, I would imagine. Now, describe the route, because I was fascinated in your book, A Pilgrimage to Eternity. It sounded like it was a bonanza. It was just a parade of history and places wrapped up in the Christian story. Right. So I'll be honest with you as a fellow lover of Europe. It's spectacular, Rick. It's it's some of the most glorious country in the world. If there wasn't even 
a religious reason to go there, it's worth the walk because it's every place is a new adventure. Every place is a drama. Every place is a fresh, who are you going to meet now? What are you going to bump him into? But then it has the bonus of being the theological cradle of Christianity. So there's not a place where a, a martyr hasn't been hacked to death or a king hasn't been crowned with the oil of God or a miracle hasn't happened or an army came together. Every place is some extraordinary event. And as a time traveler, which is what I call myself instead of a historian, it's marvelous. It's just spectacular. Time traveler. You know, I've been dealing with the same thing because people ask me, why am I so excited about Garibaldi? Mm -hmm. You know, because I know what it would be like because of my love of history to be an Italian in a peninsula where there was no Italy. When when he's trying to bring Italy together. together. Exactly. Yeah. Why are you so excited about Martin Luther? Because I can imagine 500 years ago the frustration if you wanted to read the Bible and you couldn't because it was only in Latin and they they had to dole it out to you on their terms. It was the clerical filter. Yeah. Exactly. So Mm -hmm. when you travel, when you see that Gothic cathedral on the horizon, you imagine a pilgrim in the old days without a map and he saw the spire and he would set his sights on that spire. Without a GPS, without a phone, without good footwear, without good nutrition. I mean, I had the best stuff that REI could provide and still got horrible blisters. One of the many cool things about the Via Francigena is at the end of every day, especially in Italy, you're just beat dead tired after doing your 18 miles. And then there's the glorious hill town. That's your destination for the day. So you still have a thousand (laughs) vertical feet you have to kill. But then you're going to consume 3,000 calories shortly thereafter. So it's a great reward. That's a great thing about travel. Tim Egan has written the book Pilgrimage to Eternity to share highlights and insights from his trek from Canterbury to Rome along the old pilgrim route known as the Via Francigena. His website is timothyeganbooks.com. In your book you call the Via Francigena, and that's the pilgrimage way from Canterbury in England all the way to Rome in the the Vatican, you call it the thinking person's Camino. Yeah, exactly. So the pilgrims I met along the way had introduced me to this concept that I didn't know, you probably know it, of deep walking. Mm-hmm. that in a given day, you're going to try to put aside your digital distractions. You're going to try to resolve some things. Now, some people would say that's naive. I don't think you would say that. But, you know, you try to answer these age-old questions. Some of them have to do with, is there a benevolent God that would allow the Holocaust? You know, a question that theologians have stopped asking, but most of us have not. Some of it has to have to do with, you know, how this church can prevail with a pope I really, really respect and admire, but with so much awful history. And so the thinking man's trail is it prompts these thoughts along the way. Deep walking, a way to meditate while moving. Exactly. I think that's what you called it in your book. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe there's even an advantage to be moving while you're meditating on this Well, sort of you know, thing. Um, if you were just sitting around in your room thinking about this, it wouldn't be the same. No, you're right. There's a great prompt, Rick. There's a, all this vast stimulus. And the other thing is... You're immersed this, in it. You're swimming through a tight exactly. pool. Exactly. And to think that also, when I was on the final stretch of the VF, which is the Via Antica, the Roman road, to think of my footprints going over the worn rock of, you know, 200 generations of similar pilgrims oh. just gave me shivers. You know, I, I crossed that little hill. What is it? Uh, Monte Mario? Yeah. There's a bluff. Right. And I walked over it on the 500th anniversary of the uh, time that Martin Luther did it. He walked from Germany all the way there. He did. 
he with did. lousy shoes. Exactly. And he came across that bluff, and there he sees St. Peter's, the Mecca of Christendom. Right. That's the highest point in Rome, by the way. I think it's 587 feet yeah. above sea level. I heard something in Canterbury, Rick, when I started this pilgrimage from an Anglican woman minister. I went to the oldest church in the English-speaking world, St. Martin's, with just a handful of congregants there. But the sermon was remarkable, and she talked about Keros time versus Kronos time, which is in the Greek New Testament. Keros is the time we measure our lives by, minutes, hours, seconds, days, weeks, months. Kronos time, she said, are moments when awe and wonder seem to stand still. When I was in that park at the end of my pilgrimage, 500 feet above Rome, I said to my wife, pause, Keros time, take it in. You know, this is kind of related, I think, to what you talk about in your book, Tim, this modern versus medieval mindset. And Mm -hmm. a medieval mindset can be a bad thing in some cases, but it can also be a very good thing. And a lot of people are so quick to condemn organized religion. It seems to me, sadly, they, they sort of take it out on God when what they're condemning is what people have done in the mm-hmm. name of God. And in a, in a big picture, God's probably just up there chuckling, you know? Yeah, you raise a fantastic question. And that's one I wrestled with, too, was that I started this pilgrimage as a skeptic because I'm a journalist and, you know, sort of prove it to me. Someone who had every reason to have abandoned my Catholic faith because there was some pain in my own family how the clerical abuse scandal affected us, but saying to myself, I'm going to strip away the cynicism. I'm going to strip away my skepticism. I'm in my 60s. I'm going to try to have a road to revelation. I don't know what that road is, but I'm going to be open-minded to it. And I came to the roughly, well, I don't want to tell how I ended up, but I'll tell you, one of my conclusions was similar to yours, which was that I don't blame Christ in any way. His philosophy, if you look at it even on gays, he doesn't say a word about gays right. yeah. in the New Testament anywhere. How did this come from? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's how organized religion shaped these thoughts. So I came to a much more appreciative and open view of the supernatural, of miracles, of people who have genuine faith and are trying to do good things. But also I came to a much more negative view of when church and state join. You know, a lot of, I was just thinking, a lot of people say, have, have a safe trip. Maybe a dangerous trip is transformative travel, and it gets you away from your comfortable preconceptions and your easy cynicism. Very good observation, because I said at the start of this book, for those pilgrims of long ago, this was the most dangerous thing they could do in their lives. Not just physically dangerous, but some of them would start out as Christians and end up as atheists. Others would start out as atheists and end up as Christians. For me, it became the same way. I met many atheists on this trail, and many young people, too. Because pilgrimage is a way the young do religion in some respect. You know, we're talking right now with the best-selling author and New York Times columnist Tim Egan. Tim's written a book called A Pilgrimage to Eternity, From Canterbury to Rome in Search of a Faith. And it shares his introspective time as he ventured, wore out shoes, and, and suffered through, I would think, Horrific medieval blisters um, <laughs> uh, on your journey Despite from Canterbury the to best Rome. Boots REI has. Oh man! <laughs> All along the the medieval Via Francesca, yeah. the way of Saint Francis. We mm-hmm. have links to Tim's work with this week's show. It's at uh, ricksteves.com/radio. And to learn more about Tim's work, uh, his his website is timothyeganbooks.com. That's E G A N. So Tim, when you talked about setting out to be a pilgrim, you needed to get in physical and spiritual shape. I can imagine what getting in physical shape for a long hike is. Talk about getting in spiritual shape before this journey. This is courageous, and you got to get in shape spiritually for something that could be transformational. Mm-hmm. Very observant 
question because the physical part is the easier part. It's easy to run stairs and do laps and get my upper thighs in shape and all of that and lose some weight. Most of us can do that. Right. So I try to atone. I try to uh, make a donation to charity. I try to cleanse myself of some of my bitterness. But um, no, it's the process of decluttering. And then the much harder thing is the digital cleanse part of it. And I want to make a point about something you said earlier about the spiritual. I say in the book that we are all spiritual beings, but a curse of modern life is that we suffer from malnutrition of the soul. We don't know how to tend the soul because modern life doesn't allow us many opportunities. I'm not even talking in the specific range of organized religion. I'm just talking about attending it. And that's why I think, Rick, pilgrimages are so popular. 200 million people a year worldwide make some sort of pilgrimage. You said the Alps were about your favorite part, the Italian Alps, because it's just soaked in the supernatural. Yeah. What's what's an example? Well, you know this. Every part of Italy, the landscape itself is stitched to mysticism. You know, there's a saint who died there. There's a miracle that happened here. And this is what I really noticed about the two countries' difference, France and, and Italy, the two biggest countries in the Via Francigena. The French were fine, but they're, they were a little dismissive. You know, right, eh, they were yeah, kind of meh. Yeah. And I even say the French dogs had an attitude, you know. Yeah. You get to Italy, and this one of the first things that happens is this woman comes out and kisses me on the cheek. And she says, I'm no longer Catholic, but I love pilgrims. When you get to Rome, you must say, say ciao to Papa Francesca. <laughs> give him, tell him I love Papa Francesca. I'm no, I'm no right. Catholic, but give, give right. Papa she, Francesca she gave me this big kiss on the cheek. And the Italians were like that. They were very welcome. They really welcome and respect and love via Francigia pilgrims. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Tim Egan, and his book is A Pilgrimage to Eternity, From Canterbury to Rome in Search of a Faith. We know Tim from his work as a New York Times columnist and some of his other great novels, and this is his latest sharing, how this was a transformational experience, and it's something that anybody can risk having if they make the point to go on a pilgrimage. Tim, when I think of a pilgrimage, I think of pain, when I think of, you know, devotion, you think of pain, mm-hmm. and, and it can be ugly, people whipping themselves and this yeah, kind of thing. the flagellants. The fl- right, it, right. it can be, I, I climbed the holy steps in Rome on my knees just to see what it's like. It's Holy painful. Cow. And that's just a small thing, but right. you've got Jesus on the cross up at the top of the staircase, uh-huh. and you've got all these old devout Catholics around me climbing on the knees and saying uh, the Our Father in every step. Right. And I'm on my knees just to try to understand it. Mm-hmm. I did. When you've got that pain, you empathize a little more with, with this. <laughs> did, it, did it change your view in any way? <laughs> <laughs> it just it made me think about suffering exactly. and, and other things. Um, but you had pain on your trip with your the drudgery of hiking and dealing with the demand physically. Well, you know, climate change is affecting Europe rather dramatically. And I had I started out in May, and I had an incredible heat wave. I don't know if you remember two years ago when Europe was ablaze and much of it was on fire. I mean, I had I had 100-degree temperatures in May. That alone was hard. And then get snowstorms on the other side. I mean, that's part of the adventure, knowing you know, one day it's going to be like this, the next day it's going to be like that. Getting lost is part of the adventure. I got lost a, a bunch of times, and that's really hard. You know, you, at the end of the day, it's getting dark, and you're just getting ready. You don't know where you're going to stay. I never traveled with a sleeping bag. I had to make it to a monastery, a hostel, or a hotel. What an adventure. I would love to hear your thought on your experience about relics and miracles, because this is something that modern people have a very tough time, and you can be logical. There's something beyond logic. But you had an experience at Santa Lucia, Filippini? Yes, uh-huh. Filippini. So I started out just totally flabbergasted by the concept of relics. They're basically body parts, a piece of a finger of St. Thomas, uh, a hair clipping from another martyr. 
and when then you get to Italy and you realize a fair amount of the churches have a body underneath the altar there in the crypt. And in the Catholic faith, there's a concept called incorruptibility, which means a person has lived a saintly life and the body does not decay. Well, of course, I was skeptical of this. And then I get to Montefiascone, which has the third largest dome in all of Christendom. The first is in Florence. The second is St. Peter's Square. The third is in the Cathedral of Santa Margarita. I got there on this dark and stormy night near the end of my pilgrimage. I was bone tired. I was wet. And I went and stripped off my clothes. I ran to the church in the howling storm. I ignored the third largest dome in Christendom to go down into the crypt and see San Lucia Filippini through the glass. So I'm all alone, just me and Lucy. And I walk close. I get within 10 feet. And she's lying on her side. She's got this alabaster pale face. She looks like Elizabeth Warren. And then now I'm a skeptic. Her eyes opened. The eyes, I, I clearly saw the eyes slowly open. I got out my camera, I took a bunch of pictures, and then the eyes slowly closed. And I later wrote a note to the bishop of Montefiascone saying, okay, you know, you got a little undertaking trick going on here. You know, the American girl dolls that my daughter used to have, their eyes opened when you turn them. So wait a minute. I'm sitting across from Tim Egan, the Pulitzer Prize-winning New York <laughs> Times <laughs> columnist. You're in a crypt in Italy, and you're looking at uh, some relics, and the eyes literally opened and closed you saw. Of a 362-year-old dead woman, again, who looked pretty good. And yeah. her miracle was her saintly life. She promoted schools right. for girls and stuff like that. It's tough the way you phrased it, but that's what happened. I, I couldn't shake my skepticism. Now, here's what happened later on. I asked the other pilgrims as I got near the end if anyone had seen this. Well, there was a Russian physicist who was traveling the Via Francigena for penance for his role in Chernobyl. He didn't speak a word of English, but my English friend told me he saw the same thing I did. So I said, great. My only corroborating witness is a man who knows too much and can't speak a word of English. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but Rick, honestly, um, I know what happened. I hadn't had a drink. You know, I was I'm fully aware of my senses and this and that. I saw this. I saw these eyes open. Tim, I loved it when you walked into Rome thinking what it would be like to walk in Rome as a pilgrim, and you did it. And you stood before that statue of Bruno on Campo di Fiore, and you looked into Bruno's eyes. What did you think? What was that like? Well, Bruno was the heretic who was burned for believing what every third grader today knows to be true, simple science. The interesting thing, he's staring across with his cowl at the Vatican less than a mile away. Now that history turns and pivots, now we have a pope. Pope Francis, who embraces science, who spoke to the American Congress and said, don't be in climate denial, but don't deny science, who had Stephen Hawking come visit him and loved talking to him and hearing about it and said that every new thing we learn from science is evidence of the divine. So, but it was, it was interesting. Because and, and the Bruno statue is right there in a, in a square uh, today that celebrates uh, hedonism and secularism. Right, right. And, it's, and beneath, I think that at the base of the statue, it says, um, to Bruno from the people he foresaw. Oh, yeah. yeah. See, now, and the, yeah. the people he foresaw is actually uh, the Pope today. Exactly right. That's the point I make, the great the irony. The Pope today, who, who's celebrated a square, a piazza in Rome being named after Martin Luther. Exactly. Things change. Yeah, he really reached out to Lutherans, too. Yeah. yeah. So this is an ongoing thing, and to be travelers, mm -hmm. we can be open to that. To be a tourist is to have a bucket list and take a selfie. To be a traveler is to go to learn about a place and broaden your perspective. To be a pilgrim is to learn not necessarily about the place, but about yourself. It can be transformational. And your book is a, a testimony to that. I love this notion that you talked about in your book. There is no way. The way is made by walking. It's from St. Labre, the patron saint of the homeless. 
he was um, a wanderer all his life, and he died in the Colosseum with scabs and wounds all over him at the age of 37. Uh, he lived in France, and he still lives on. There's a big celebration in his name, but he spent his entire life with other homeless people wandering around Europe. And that wonderful line I found early on in the pilgrimage, it became one of my themes, that there is no way the way is made by walking. And it's sort of a universal sentiment. If you take that to heart and you're open, I think a lot of things will happen to you. Tim Egan, thank you so much for the, um, I think, the courage and the openness and the spirit of exploration to take a pilgrimage from Canterbury to Rome and then write about it. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. You can also listen to Tim Egan's recent interview about the immortal Irishman from our show archives at ricksteves.com radio. A clergywoman from Iowa has a few ideas you'll appreciate on travels to boost your spirit. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. What places connect you with what you might think of as something holy or sacred? As a travel writer and Episcopal deacon, Lori Erickson has been on a dozen different pilgrimages in the U.S., Europe, South America, and the Holy Land. They've taken her to learn about many forms of religious and spiritual practice. She collects these adventures and her encounters with spiritual leaders in her book called Holy Rover, Journeys in Search of Mystery, Miracles, and God. Lori Erickson, welcome to Travel with Rick Steves. Thank you for having me, Rick. It is amazing when you think of the cultural diversity on this planet how much religious diversity there also is. And it is pretty realistic to splice that into your travel dreams, isn't it? Oh, I think so. And and I think one of the things that people sometimes forget is that trips to holy sites were almost certainly the first tourism, that it would be one of the reasons why you would be willing to leave the safety of your village and home would be on a religious quest of some sort. Hmm. And so pilgrimage sites are, I think, the earliest form of tourism that we, we know of. And you can actually be moved, and I love to be moved emotionally mm-hmm. when I'm mm-hmm. traveling. And uh, and you've done so much traveling where you get out of your comfort zone and you find yourself moved in ways you, you didn't know you'd be moved. Now, in your book, you explain how you were raised a Lutheran, and then you traveled all over the uh, world of religious faiths, and you <laughs> ended up back in the Christian fold, and now you're a mm-hmm. pastor in the mm-hmm. Episcopal Church. Uh, give us the the rundown on your itinerary of different religions in your own personal Mm -hmm. faith journey. What religions have you embraced? Uh, Just very, very quickly. So I grew up Lutheran, and then in my 20s, I was a neo-pagan, a Wiccan. Then I dabbled in Buddhism, and then I came back to Christianity and became an Episcopalian, and then sort of came back to um, Buddhism as well, and also have a great respect for Native American, especially Lakota traditions. So I'm a real, I'm a Heinz 57. So really. You sure are. <laughs> and uh, I think uh, in your book, you talk about how this wonderment of traveling with your faith in mind hit you when you noticed there were tears coming out of your eye in front mm-hmm. of the desk where Martin Luther translated the Bible uh, in hiding in a castle in Germany 500 years ago. What was that experience mm-hmm. like? I think one of the reasons why it's good to travel to holy sites is that they teach us about ourselves. And so that experience of being where Martin Luther had translated the New Testament made me think about my childhood, made me think about the strong faith of people that I had known when I was growing up, and made me reevaluate that I had been, I'd been too quick to throw that out and really gained a much deeper respect for Martin Luther and what he had done as a result of that. You know, tears, to me, are a powerful message from the divine. I, 
I haven't shared this much, I don't think, anywhere, but I was sitting on a carpet in a, mo- in a mosque in the Holy Land, and a monk, no, and an imam was evangelizing to me, and he was filled with love, and he was so beautiful, and he hugged me, and I cried, and I cried because mm. it was so joyful to have a mm-hmm. Muslim bring me to spiritual tears, even though I'm a dyed-in-the-wool Christian. It opened me up, and it can be in as you've done with Native American faiths. It can be thinking of uh, beautiful ideas when you're communing with nature at Walden Pond. It can be in a progression of devout Catholics at Lourdes. Talk about a couple of places that have surprised you in your travels in that regard. One of the chapters uh, in my book is about uh, Tibetan Buddhist uh, temple in Bloomington, Indiana, uh, which is one of the major Tibetan Buddhist sites in North America. It was founded by the elder brother of the current Dalai Lama. And I was astonished to find a little bit of Tibet in the middle of the Midwest. Hmm. Uh, And I was also really moved by the welcome that I had there from the Rinpoche. Rinpoche is a a word meaning honored teacher. And that sort of experience that you had in, in a mosque of just being welcomed as a person. It didn't make any difference who I was, where I came from. There was this moment of connection between two two children of God. Mm-hmm. And that's a profoundly beautiful experience, especially, I think, when it happens across faiths. You know, it's a reassuring thing to know that there's so much more that unites us than divides us. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're finding the sacred on the road with travel writer and pastor Lori Erickson. And uh, she's the author of the book, Holy Rover, Journeys in Search of Mystery, Miracles, and God. She's recently published a book about the end-of-life customs of different societies, and it's called Near the Exit. Her website is laurierickson.net. What about the encounter you had with a chief priest in the Icelandic pagan religion of Asatru? Is, <laughs> oh, is that was great. Is he a children of God I, also? Or what? I don't even absolute, understand what that was. Abs- <laughs> absolutely. I, I had great respect for him. One of the things I write in my book is that you can sort of tell when someone's done their spiritual homework. And I think... He has, you know, he is someone who is really steeped in the traditions and the mythology and the history of Iceland and of the Norse people. He's a faith leader. Mm-hmm. He shepherds people's spiritual lives. And so I had a great interview with him. One of the things I love about my work, as, and I would guess you can relate to this, is, you know, it gives me the chance to ask questions of people who I think are really interesting. And I think religion is endlessly interesting. And people who have spent a lot of time thinking. I mean, people who mm-hmm. don't, don't just mm-hmm. uh, entertain themselves watching TV, but they're out there Absolutely. growing and challenging themselves. I like what you wrote about just getting close to nature with the whole Walden Pond sort of thing. And I've often been hiking on a ridge in the Alps and thinking, this is the greatest church in Europe. And and you just Mm, want to, you know, if if ever I was a holy roller, it would be on top of an Alp. Uh, That's right. And And then then, where'd you go? And then I went to Lourdes in France. So that's super Catholicism. Yes, yes. But I I write about that in relation to, um, I have two sons. And when our older son was five months old, he nearly died of Mm -hmm. uh, meningitis. Mm. So I didn't go to Lourdes at that time, but when I went to Lourdes, it was with that experience Mm. really uppermost in my mind, because Lourdes, of course, is the famous healing shrine. Oh, and I've been to Lourdes, and to see the faith, the power of the faith that come there with their loved ones in stretchers and in crutches and going up to that site, and to think that people have been Mm -hmm. doing this for generations and generations, it's just so exciting to find a way to respect that, even if it doesn't fit with your own religious views. Mm-hmm. 
Yep, absolutely. And I think, too, that at the shrine, there is this, this sense of commonality there because if everyone knows someone who is ill or you have that in your own personal story or it's in your future, I mean, it is the universal, one of the universal experiences of needing healing. And Lourdes is a place that sort of you can see that written out yeah. um, in every step that you take. And you, if you're just completely closed off and, and just embrace the religion that you were raised in your whole life, you may not respect the fact that this religious sentiment makes sense to people from completely different cultures who have mm-hmm. a different, quote, religion, but the same kind of spirituality, maybe. So after Lords, where did you go on your journey? So these were not, I'm giving you the order in my book, but they weren't necessarily chronological in okay. my life, I would yeah. say. So the next trip that I describe is to Jerusalem and Galilee and Israel. And that's a chapter that talks about my return to Christianity after being away from it okay. for about 10 years, why I came back, really, and about the power of being in Jerusalem, which is, of course, you know, sacred to three of the world's great faiths. Doesn't it occur to you it's kind of odd that God would have this weird sense of humor to put the holy spot of three great religions on the same rock? Uh, yes, a very small piece of real estate for yeah. that much uh, history and spirit, but yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. And then what about, you, you did more Asian religion, religious Well, I went, I went to Turkey, and I have a long-standing interest in the divine feminine, going back to my days as a neo-pagan, but then also rediscovering the Virgin Mary. Uh, in Christianity, which was not part of my Lutheran upbringing at all, but it's mm-hmm. um, I have a, a great devotion to and affection for Mary. And so I went to the ruins of the Temple of Artemis at mm-hmm. Ephesus and then the House of the Virgin Mary. That's interesting that Artemis and the home of the Virgin Mary happen to be in the same ancient city. Yes, it is interesting, huh. isn't it? And that's one of the ways... In a, in a land called Anatolia, which a lot of people say is the land of mothers... Oh, though that I didn't know yeah. what that what Anatolia means. But that sort of layer upon layer intertwining of mm-hmm. holy sites I think happens a lot. You know, like when Christian churches came into Europe, for example, as I'm sure you know, that they would build on the sites of pagan temples. Oh, of course. Because people had been coming there. It's so interesting. That's what you have to do. You have to own the indigenous religion in order for people right. to embrace it. I think that's the pragmatic thinking anyways. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're journeying on a search of mystery and miracles right now. Finding the Sacred on the Road with travel writer and pastor Lori Erickson. And uh, she's the author of the book called Holy Rover. And she's also recently published a book on the end of life customs of different societies that's called Near the Exit. Her website is laurierickson.net. When you think of all the travels you've done, Lori, what, what are some moments that have, have sort of given you that clarity? Oh, wow. <laughs> so I would say a place that I have come back to again and again is Bear Butte in South Dakota. And it's an, a somewhat unconventional holy site in the sense that a lot of people aren't aware of it. It's a place that has been considered sacred by Plains Indian tribes, especially the Lakota and the Cheyenne for many centuries. And part of the reason why that place is holy to me is that I have come back to it again and again. My husband's family lives in that part of the world. And so every summer we would go and we would hike Bear Butte. And even though there are many more scenic places to go, I mean, it's beautiful, but it's not spectacular like the Alps are. But it's a place that has been hallowed by people coming there over and over and over again. So as you walk down the hiking paths, you can see prayer flags, uh, ribbons that are tied onto the trees and small bundles of tobacco, which is a a sacred herb to many tribes. 
And so to be in a place where so many people have prayed, I think if you are open to it at all, you can feel sort of the energy, the vibration of that. And it helps you, you know, because we're, we're so alone, all so many of us, so much of the time. And I think going to a place like Bear Butte or a, another holy site really helps us feel our connection to the past, to people coming after us, and to the many people who are also on a spiritual path. So, Lori, when you're traveling, you can be open to religious experiences almost anywhere, or you can actually be purposeful in working that into your itinerary. Uh, when you're traveling in France, there's a sort of an interfaith monastic community called Taizé. Tell us mm-hmm. about your experience at Taizé. So I, I went there as part of a three-week trip to France. It was near the end of the trip. I went in November, which is not a high pilgrimage season by any means, but there were still people there. And I and I had read a lot about Taizé, and I also had sung Taizé music a lot in the church that I attend. It's a style of meditative chant, very simple words repeated, um, lines repeated over and over again. And so I felt like I knew Taizé even before I was there. But the chance to be in that spot was very meaningful to me. And to see pilgrims from around the world there, especially young people, I've been really drawn to Taizé. One of the reasons why it was interesting is that it is a modern pilgrimage site. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these holy sites are steeped in tradition. You know, they go back hundreds of years, centuries. But Taizé really dates much more recently. It was an ecumenical community that was founded after World War II. And yet it has become one of the most popular pilgrimage sites in Europe. And I think that phenomenon mm-hmm. is really interesting now, to learn about, ecumenical means inter-Christian, and interfaith would right. mean different kinds exactly. of religions. So this is ecumenical. Yes. It's certainly international. I mean, you you hear mm-hmm. things in their beautiful medieval kind of chants. And the music, as you said, I think you use it in your services. And I think a lot of Catholic and Protestant churches use Taizé mm-hmm. music. If people don't know it, it's T-A-I-Z-E. It's just gorgeous music. But what I found was most stressful about Taizé, from my tour member's point of view, because we went there on a tour once, is the um, the silence. And a lot of <laughs> Taizé is silence. And we almost, yeah. ab- in just like nature abhors a vacuum, I think the modern American uh, lifestyle abhors silence. Mm-hmm. Even though, I can't remember who said it, but the line that God's first language is silence. Oh, that's and beautiful. Yeah, but you have to be quiet in order to hear it. <laughs> Go to Tese. If you'd like to see a medieval monastery completely revamped for the 21st century yeah, in an inter- yeah. interdenominational way, Tese is worth checking out. It happens to be right in the part of France that has the very first Benedictine monasteries. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's sort of a beautifully tied into the medieval faith story of Europe, but at the same time, it's global and modern. We're journeying in search of mystery and miracles right now with travel writer and pastor Lori Erickson on Travel with Rick Steves. She's the author of the book Holy Rover. She's also recently published a book on the end-of-life customs of different societies. It's called Near the Exit. Another site that you write about is Machu Picchu, and Machu Picchu is just must be a fascinating experience when you go there uh, curious about pre-Columbian religions in our hemisphere. 
Well, Machu Picchu has been called the world's most perfect blending of natural and human-made beauty, and I have not been in a place that could beat it, certainly. One of the things I thought was really interesting about, about Machu Picchu is the way in which the power of that landscape, you can really sort of feel it in your bones when you're there. You're on this narrow strip of, of a mountain with the plunging um, altitude on either side and clouds are wreathing all mm. all around you. And there are these mysterious stone buildings there and you know, archaeologists have some sense of what that was about, but not really. There's a lot of mystery that's still in Machu Picchu, and I think that you can feel that. Uh, it's a long journey to get to Machu Picchu, <laughs> but when you get there, I've never heard anybody that didn't say it wasn't worth the trip. Right. You know, we've been right. talking about a lot of places you can go, but a mindset can give you a spiritual dimension to anywhere you travel. Mm-hmm. If you could just wrap up our conversation talking a little bit about why it can be important to visit holy places, even for non-religious people, and enjoyable and, and meaningful if you have the proper mindset. I do think the most important part of being a pilgrim is not where you go, but what you're seeking and, and the openness that you have. I really try to emphasize to people that you don't have to have a plane ticket in order to have a pilgrimage. In fact, every square inch of Earth has holy sites within a, a short distance away. They might be retreat centers, they might be churches, they might be beautiful spots in nature. There are places all over the earth where people can have this sort of rich, rich, life-changing travel experience. And it really is about the internal journey more than it is the external one of being open to change, being open to the messages that come, about being willing to be in silence about seeking out companions on the way. I think that's one of the things we haven't mentioned is the importance of other pilgrims that you meet when you're traveling to these places. And often these can be life-changing encounters, even if they don't take very much time. You know, a short conversation, an afternoon visit. You don't need to fly to Machu Picchu. You don't need to go to Teze in France. You don't need to go to St. Peter's. Uh, you can, and it can certainly be a great experience, but you could take a walk in the garden or you could uh, you could enjoy mm-hmm. a gathering of uh, neighbors and uh, you can do it with a certain mindset where it becomes a trip in itself. You write that sometimes you don't know you're on a pilgrimage until you get home. W- what do you mean by that? Well, my definition of a pilgrimage is a journey that changes your heart. Sometimes you don't realize that that change has happened until you return home. And so my own personal example of that is that about 20 years ago, my husband and I had the chance to live in Yorkshire in England for a semester. And we were just drawn to holy sites, uh, standing stones and churches and Celtic Christian sites. And it was only after we got home that I started thinking about all the ways in which that experience had been a journey that changed sort of the interior of me. It wasn't just seeing the sights. It was me almost unintentionally seeking out sights that I needed. Hmm. You, you've got to be open to having that experience, and then you've got to pause long enough to think mm-hmm. about it before yes. you get on yes. to the next. And so, in so many cases, your travels are just a frantic montage of experiences, and it is nice and actually productive to take a moment, have a cup of coffee, think about what you just experienced (laughs) and how beautiful that was. Laurie Erickson, Mm -hmm. author of Holy Rover, Journeys in Search of Mystery, Miracles, and God. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by yours truly Tim Tatton with Isaac Kaplan-Wilner and Kaz Hall. 
We get website support from Americitnikon, promotional support from Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation Studios in New York City for their help this week. You'll find guest information, and you can listen again on demand at ricksteves.com radio.